Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the Johncast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. The Supreme Court's conservative majority recently issued a ruling that will make it harder for prisoners to win release on claims of bad lawyering when convicted of state crimes. The decision stems from two state prison inmates on death row for separate murders in Arizona. It is complicated but important, so we caught up with Jules Epstein, professor of law and director of advocacy programs at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. This is an incredibly important topic, but this is also a very kind of complicated situation that we're going to burrow through. So to start, the decision recently handed down by the Supreme Court, it connects back to two separate prisoners in Arizona. Kind of explain what was on the table and what the Supreme Court decided. So each of the prisoners had a trial. They lost their trial and they were found guilty. And they appealed and they lost their appeal. That's step one. And that can happen in Arizona or in Pennsylvania. Step two, they had something that was called a post-conviction review. And we have that in Pennsylvania. You lost your trial. You lost your appeal. Now you go back to square one with a new lawyer who looks to see if your trial lawyer made mistakes. Each of these Arizona folks got a post-conviction lawyer, but they didn't do a very good job of looking for error. When they lost all their Arizona processes, they finally went to federal court for something people have heard. It's called a writ of habeas corpus. And that's when you say to a federal judge, my trial was in Pennsylvania or my trial was in Arizona. But something about it violated the U.S. Constitution. What was the violation here? I had bad lawyers. And the Constitution says you've got a right to a lawyer. That's the Gideon case. And you have the right to a lawyer who is effective. Well, that's the backdrop. When each of these fellows went to federal court, they finally had their third lawyers. In other words, not the trial lawyer not the post-conviction lawyer, but lawyer number three. And it's often at that stage that you get really well-trained and well-funded lawyers. And those lawyers did all sorts of digging and essentially reinvestigated the cases and said, wait a minute, there's this whole bunch of evidence that was never presented. And the U.S. Supreme Court said to each of these Arizona fellows, the majority said, That's too bad. Under a particular federal law that limits habeas review, federal courts can't have a new hearing to look at new evidence that you didn't present in the state court. The two prisoners were saying, but wait a minute, we had bad lawyers in state court. Don't blame us for our lawyers' screw up. Six to three. The Supreme Court said, too bad on you, even though there's incredible new evidence. And in one of these two cases, Matt, the evidence raised serious questions about who injured the child who ultimately died. 
In other words, medical experts, scientists came in and said, we think the prosecution's timing is all off. This guy may have done nothing. He may actually be innocent. The U.S. Supreme Court said, it doesn't matter. We are interpreting this federal law very narrowly, that no matter how bad all your earlier lawyers were, if you didn't bring it up in state court, you can come to federal court and say, hey, my lawyer never did all this stuff. But we, the federal judges now, are not going to allow you a hearing to tell us what that stuff is. So if you will, one way of looking at this is the court said, we're going to punish the prisoner for having two bad lawyers, not one. What this means going forward is it, you know, if you get into the legal system, it would seem to me that it kind of narrows your opportunities to have the truth come out. If you get stuck, and I don't mean this, you know, a lot of court-appointed lawyers, most court-appointed lawyers work hard, they are overworked, they are underfunded. That's a separate podcast. But if you do get stuck with someone who's just, you know, punching the clock and going through, and, you know, you don't get good counsel, you're, you're kind of limited going forward, right? That's well put. Let me add to that if I may. It's as true for paid lawyers as for court-paid or public defenders, okay? Criminal law is pretty complicated. And to do a criminal case right, you need a lot of knowledge and a lot of resources and some time. That's part one. Part two, in Pennsylvania, let's bring it home. If you lose that first trial and you lose your appeal, and now you get that new lawyer in Pennsylvania for that round two, there are basically no resource centers. There's, there are hit and miss resource materials. So often the lawyers who are appointed or hired for round two, what we call post-conviction, don't know what to look for. And so if you get a good post-conviction lawyer who says, I know what to look for, and I'm going to either get the money to look for it or petition the judge for money to look for it. Now we've got all these medical experts. Now you're in good position because the Pennsylvania courts have to scrutinize it and they might give you a new trial. And if you don't, now you can go to federal habeas and say, look at all this great information, all this medical information or whatever that I got because I showed it to the state court. But if you have somebody else in the identical situation and their second round lawyer doesn't ask for the resources or isn't sophisticated or well-trained enough to know what to look for. And then you get that third lawyer in federal court, you have two identical people, two people with equally flawed convictions. One gets a chance at review and one doesn't. We need to take a break. We will continue our conversation with Jules Epstein right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. KYW News Radio in depth continues now as we continue our conversation with guest Jules Epstein. What is the, I guess, the point of the court looking at this so narrowly? Why do we not want to do everything possible? Why would the court not want everything possible for wrongly convicted people to get their opportunity to prove their innocence? 
So I read and reread the decision and they never mentioned the words wrongfully convicted. So that in other words, for the majority or the words actually innocent in the sense of relating to these folks, the court majority came at this from a very different angle. And that is respect for deference to state courts. Pennsylvania, try your Pennsylvania cases. Arizona, try your Arizona cases. Federal courts really keep your nose out of the state's business and get involved only in the tiniest fraction of cases. So that is a value that they were promoting. Number two, they were promoting the value of what we call finality. This post-conviction stuff can take years or decades. And I get it. So that if my trial's in 2012 and my appeal is over in 2015 and my state post-conviction happens in 2016, and by the time I'm done with that, it's 2020, we're eight years out. And maybe the crime happened two years before the trial. So now we're 10 years out. And I'm not saying this was the right value choice. But again, the majority opinion is filled with this notion of finality is really important. The state's allowed to say, okay, we're done with this case. A victim or a victim survivor is allowed to say, okay, we're done with this case. Those are some of the values. Omitted are some of the other values, precisely the values, Matt, that you talked about. That the history of the writ of habeas corpus was like a fail-safe mechanism, okay? If things go terribly wrong, we should have a fix-it. The Supreme Court, six to three, said, we're taking most of that fix-it away. And what's particularly troubling, if I can just add this, is federal judges don't do this willy-nilly. They don't say, okay, let's mess with Pennsylvania. We'll have all these new hearings. In hundreds or thousands of habeas cases, the data are that they give hearings in one to two percent. So they're not going wild or crazy. Federal judges are pretty cautious here. But this said, we're closing the door even on that one or two percent. I've been training lawyers and judges on post-conviction work here in Pennsylvania for almost a quarter of a century. So we have periodic trainings and lawyers can go to them and they can pay attention or they can sit in the back and do the crossword puzzle. Um, we don't have a statewide office called Resource Council for Post-Conviction Lawyers. Other states may. So you're on your own. If, Matt, you're the lawyer for poor old Jules Epstein and you didn't have all that training, you're trying to do your best, okay? but you haven't kept up on the forensic science issue. You haven't kept up on the latest hearsay law. You haven't kept up on what's new in jury instructions. We don't even have a statewide checklist. Airline pilots might have a checklist, right? Before you take off, check this, check this, check this. Surgeons have checklists. We don't have a statewide checklist that every post-conviction lawyer can reference. I mean, I've written some, I've shared some, but there's nothing official that says, here's what you have to do to do a comprehensive, forget exhaustive, a comprehensive review of that case 
where Jules has already been convicted, but our state law says, let's be careful, let's take a second look. Well, if you're going to take a second look, please do it right. As someone who is so involved in this, how does this decision land with you and all the work you've done? Because it would seem to fly in the face of everything you work for. It lands with me in a couple of ways. Number one is, sadly, it ignores the fact that there's a lot of imperfection, and that's a polite word, in the practice of criminal law. And so it it shows a tolerance for low quality representation. And to me, that's incompatible with the goal of the Sixth Amendment. It also shows a failure to recognize the risk that an innocent person can be convicted, can be convicted in part because of a prosecutor's tunnel vision, they looked at things too narrowly, and a defense lawyer's failure to test the case fully. And finally, to me, it's a retreat that says federal courts have less of a role of protecting rights than we thought they did. So for all those reasons, frankly, it does not sit well with me at all. It seems to me, as we move forward as a society, and you know, you talked forensic evidence, you know, DNA changed the game of criminal trials, you know, as far as things like that. Unfortunately, we learn a little bit more and more every day that not in all cases, but in some cases, the police are less than forthright with what they present and how they present it. It seems to me we should be working to get it right more than worrying about just shutting the door and moving on to the next one. But it seems this goes in completely the opposite direction. Absolutely. Because as I said, it effectively tolerates an imperfect system by saying we had this mechanism I have to tell you, very few people win habeas cases, and that may be okay. But now you've made it harder for the few who may be really deserving. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.